Dr. Bruce Piasecki is a New York Times bestselling author with books such as A New Way to Wealth, Doing More with Teens, Missing Persons, 24 A Fable, and founder of AHC Group Inc., a global management consulting firm advising major corporations on social response capitalism, sustainability, and innovation. Piasecki has been an agent of climate solutions for over 40 years. He's also co-founder of Creative Force Foundation, Inc., which annually awards young writers globally on business and societal issues. Bruce Piasecki, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia, for the invitation. You're a, a business leader, consultant, and you're also an author. Just to get a little bit of your story, your beginnings, you're going to read to us from your memoir? It's fortunate to have lived long enough to be asked to write a, a memoir. So I wrote a memoir called Missing Persons when I turned 60 seven years ago. And this is a reflection on uh, what it felt like to be ages seven to 17. Edwin Torres and Su Ying Chang were my brother and sister, my Adam and Eve. While he had watched other foster brothers and sisters from different races, from distant regions, come and go in his house, Edwin and Sui stayed the longest in his memories. Well, he had other people press near him now that he was a high school basketball star. It was the bounce and hope in Edwin's voice and in Sui's dark brown eyes that tracked his moods the most in youth. When they were sad, so was he. He felt that he was their protector and the only one in this neighborhood thinking about where their next dollar might come from. He felt these foster brothers and sisters depended on him. He knew this in a primal way, in a way deeper than the prejudices that surrounded him. After his father, Walter, had died, the veterans and social security benefits were not adequate to feed and clothe the family. He saw that early in life. While his teachers and coaches chose to ignore such topics, he knew he would need to earn his way out of this predicament. His mother could not afford a car. They never ate out at a restaurant. The only book of consequence in the house was the Bible. He started working at age 10, washing the white walls on cars, working as a landscaper on Lagoon's Landing, laying sod like his uncle Ziggy to build the family purse. Lillian, his mother, left factory work and opened their home to foster children, which gave them a small but steady income. Locked into this arrangement, he felt close to his foster brothers and sisters most of the time. He remembers, for example, that fine day when he first received his working papers at the rotunda of Beach Street. He was in his teens, and he felt at last ready to serve the family. Edwin was Puerto Rican and hyperkinetic, always rocking, always moving, always in trouble at school. Edwin is a monster, the principal told him at Westbrook, many years before he had learned to fight back with words. The expert said Edwin was hyperkinetic because his biological parents were heroin addicts. Edwin was the only brother that stayed for more than six years until he also went missing. Most of the others were adopted by other families in a matter of months or a few years. He viewed this as a message. The accumulated worth of those losses defined his sense of self, 
and what was missing in his early life. Su Ying Cheng was born with birthmarks on her arms and legs, purplish maps that told the nuns at the New York City Catholic Family Home that she was a mix of Han Chinese and Samoan. Margaret Mead herself at once looked over her smallish body and pronounced her special and odd. There were other scars on Su Ying's young body from a mother who left her on a lit stove in Spanish Harlem. But that was before she found her real mother in Lillian and Piacenti. And so, you know, it's inspiring your whole story to see, you know, the, you start with these missing persons and um, it makes me wonder about how much of our biography is one of self-actualization, is one of the people in our lives, and it's also the people that are missing from our lives. How do you feel not having them, him there, even as I understand, not having images of him? So your imagination is activated. Um, you know, what other parts of you were activated by his absence? Well, Mia, I thank you for reading the memoir so closely that you picked up the absence theme. And I, I think that memory is a kind of accomplishment and that we're born into a family of humanity. You know, we're, we're, we're given a biological family, but then due to the largesse of someone like my mother, I was introduced to other races and other brothers and sisters, right? And then we're also, you can look out the house no matter how small it is and see a neighborhood. So I think that the creative process is fueled by several high octane fuels. So the engine of the self is complex but it's fueled by memory. And memory is often propelled by a sense of loss of what's missing, right? Of longing to fulfill what's missing. It's also fueled by present predicaments where you're trying to figure out how to deal with your current situation. But most importantly, I think the human imagination is propelled by a sense of the future. That's what makes us in some ways thankful. So I felt lucky that I was born poor because it gave me a chance to think about all these different fuels that propelled myself near. You had to make yourself, it wasn't like made for you. It was your story to write. Well said. I think that's why I was very lucky that um, my high school principal, Mia, felt uh, that he wanted to isolate me. And I remember one time he said, Bruce, you know, you're not only an angry young man who's expressing yourself in competitive basketball, you also are surfing a wave into the future and you're intelligent enough to try and make something of yourself, not just be consumed by the anger of the circumstance. And that man actually literally gave me Mia two books. His name was Charles Plumer and I write about him in my memoir. Charles Plumer gave me Ben Franklin's autobiography and he also gave me the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Now, I realized over time that women are probably more important in my sensibility than men, but being a competitive boy, I really consume those two books with interest. I wound up teaching Ben Franklin's autobiography for 10 years when I was an early professor because the book meant so much to me. And I do occasionally reflect on how the past emperor of Rome said so many, so many intelligent things about his thankfulness to his family and his respect of his parents. 
so that the meditations of Marcus Aurelius were also formative. And the one conclusion I'd say to people who come from the many universities you work with is that you have to find a mentor early in life. And then you also have to, if you can, magnify those mentors by finding books that allow you to meditate and ruminate on the lessons mentor is suggesting to you. So in a way, Charles Plumer gave me great leverage to grow in college by giving me those books in high school, because those were books that served as windows to my world as I was trying to think about American pragmatism in the form of Ben Franklin or think about how to be a, a leader, which Marcus Aurelius was during his time. So you were an athlete. I don't know when your kind of mission or your calling, um, you know, came to you. But when did you realize you would transition, uh, you know, away? You had you were offered many scholarships, as I understand. Uh, and then you went to Cornell. Yep. And then when did you decide you wouldn't, you know, be an athlete your whole life? You were going to go into this realm and into business. It's very natural what happened. So in high school, I felt like I was being wound up to pop out of the jack-in-the-box to perform every Friday as a basketball player. And thank God from the age of 10 to the age of 23, all I really wanted to do me was fly through the air. I just wanted to bounce the ball and make everybody else on the team look better. So um, that led to me getting full scholarships to, to go to college because no one in my family had actually went to college. My, my older biological sister, Said, spent two years at a community Catholic college, but no place like where I played basketball over the summers, you know, Big Ten, U of Maryland, or then went to the Ivy League. So I think that to answer the essence of how I went from high school to be a competitive person, by the time I started playing at University of Maryland on summer scholarships, I realized, frankly, I was not big enough and fast enough to be a professional basketball player. I mean, at, at, I played for Lefty Dreisel, who was one of the legendary coaches in the Big Ten. And although I got a scholarship to play there, I had the common sense and humility to know that I had to invest in my mind. So the beauty of the Cornell scholarship was that if I got hurt, I could still go to Cornell. Um, I was beginning to feel the, the disaster of a damaged knee even after four years of varsity high school play, which is a common ailment yeah, for competitive athletes. They often are hurt by the time they arrive in their second or third league. I think it's important to visualize when you're young what you want to do next. Almost every day in my life, uh, in the back of my mind, I have pictured my mother at least for a few minutes, almost like a meditation. And my mother was the real influence. She had so little, and yet she gave so much. You know what I mean? She was incredibly attentive to children that were not her own children, that she was you know, adopting from foster homes, or she never could afford to adopt. So the reason why so many kids uh, were missing in my life is because they would then be adopted by people who had the financial wealth to raise the children, like Su Ying Chang, was raised in California by very kind foster parents. My mother was the transitional care. But I think that I remember listening to a Joe Cocker song where he talks about picturing in the back of his mind someone. And I do think it's useful 
in the creative process and in the self-actualization process to picture your mentors in the back of your mind and all of them and, and see what they're trying to tell you about fair competition and about making your way in the world. So you touched on there, you know, you're starting to, you know, self, you're visualizing the person you want to become, you're visualizing your mentors. And, and somewhere in the, the roots of all this, I'm wondering, you know, you know, recent book, you know, A New Way to Wealth, The Power of Doing More with Less. You know, where are the, the roots of this? Uh, you share many insights, but I imagine some of this is coming out of your childhood and how to, you know, really make the most of what one has. It's something we think a lot about now with the environment. Yeah, I think the reason why I evolved into being an early environmentalist 40 years ago and then played a role in trying to define what is competitive sustainability is because of that initial um, encounter with poverty and how one outsmarts poverty and scarcity through the creative process. So that I do think that What's stunning about every man, every woman, is they have within them the ability to react to captivity and generate a few good options. They're able to invest in their family or themselves and in a sense, remake themselves, right? That's what Ben Franklin and Marcus Aurelius is all about. So I, I do believe that visualizing yourself is important. I was reflecting on my daughter, Colette, who is now 25 and in her third year of medical school at Upstate Medical. And I'm so proud of a moment when she was 16, when she was playing competitive volleyball as a setter. And um, I had asked if I could take her to this Adirondack Lake where she and I used to swim a lot when she was 10 to 16. And at that lake, I asked her if she would come with me for a month uh, before she went to college to do a book tour of Australia. And she happily said so. So we started having fun and I threw a rock into this large lake called Moreau Lake, a beautiful mirror lake in a sense. And the rock created some waves, but the particular moment of sudden rightness was when my daughter threw it even further than I could and created a bigger wake, and I suddenly realized that it was no longer about me. The finitude of my life was insignificant to the fact that I had created a family with my wife and that I had created a firm and that the third concentric circle of that firm influences other bigger firms like Merck and Walgreens and Walmart. And so the, the discovery of how true capital is social capital happened maybe a little later in my life. I was very competitive to make back wealth from what I hadn't in the beginning. But lately my books, so A New Way to Wealth is a book about social wealth. It asks the question, what is enough? And it also asks the question, what is lasting? So each of the chapters, which are about childhood and loyalty and team building and some mentors I had, good examples, is a, a summary of the principles of my entire life. And so this book, A New Way to Wealth, The Power of Doing More with Less, is meant for global new generation people to read. In a previous book, uh, Doing More with Less, 
Uh, you've emphasized frugality and how it can be advantageous for businesses in particular to eliminate unnecessary waste. Uh, do you see this idea meshing with the idea of a circular economy? Would you say you're a proponent of a circular economy? Absolutely, Larissa. Let me start by honoring, I believe you're from Oberlin, right? Yeah, when, when I was in college, Eugene Odom, the father of ecology, taught at Oberlin. And so even though I was at Cornell, I was thirsting for some kind of model of what has now become the circular economy. So that back in the day, Larissa, you know, in the 1980s, not only was there no word for sustainability, there was really just the beginning of ecosystem sciences. And I do believe that you hit the nail on the head that the answer of the future is how to get multiple parties to share waste so that there's a heightened industrial efficiency, which we now call the circular economy. I write about a client of mine for 25 years called Pat Mahoney, who actually built industrial ecosystems where he would use the waste of making for the treasury department, for example, when you make the dollar bill or you make currency, there's a fair enough uh, amount of waste in the act of making that highly secure currency that can't be fraudulent or can't be replicated by the nature of the fiber. Well, Pat Mahoney did a deal with the Treasury Department where he could to capture steam and supply them with steam. And then he took the waste fiber and found secondary uses for it, sort of began to make real what I had thought about in college, right? So he was uh, from 1980 to about 2010, I worked for him on his company called Energy Answers International. And it was an embodiment of circular economy thinking. And so he proved to me uh, the financial value of, of looking at that bottom line, triple bottom line, as we say today. You have Merck Consortium, you bring together these global players. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Mia, that's, thank you again for knowing about my five years of work at Merck. So the, the, the first concept that I think is useful to your students from Harvard and Stanford to your colleagues in Paris is a, a line from Albert Einstein, which I'll, I'll talk about this line before I talk about the radiating circles that how we serve Merck. So Albert Einstein said, strive not to be a success, but to be of value. And that was really interesting to me when I came across that line, because as a competitive athlete, I wanted to win. But it's not just about winning for your team. It's about winning for society, of being valuable to society, which is pretty much the second half of my career so far. So when Merck came up and took some of our workshops, we, uh, we run twice a year what we call the corporate affiliate workshops for the last 40 years. Well, a vice president came up with her key deputies to witness one of these workshops. And without a bid, Mia, I got the five-year job of creating an advisory council to the top 40 people at Merck. And if you think of this pharma giant, um, one of the men that I work for at Merck, uh, Jack Gavin, is um, 
former uh, technical wizard at Merck who created the purification process to make Keytruda, which is the number one compound that helps cancer patients survive much longer than chemo. So Keytruda now has a value of about $9.2 billion a year because it has so many different cancer applications. So I worked for the Vice President of Environment, Safety and Compliance, plus this guy, Jack Gavin. And our job was first spend a year studying their competition and find how the other seven big pharma like Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or the others that are in the news regarding COVID, how they work to govern innovation, how they work to govern sustainability, how they work to govern answers for the near future. It's a council that we call a council of unmet needs. You know, what have they not yet invented, right? And, and then having studied their competition, I made presentations in front of their general counsel, their corporate secretary, that vice president down at Merck headquarters. And they said, okay, Bruce, you have another year to bring us 40 potential world leaders of which we will choose seven to help us think outside of the box of Merck. So Merck is already in 68 different countries. It's, it's like the Greek Parthenon. It has many columns of productivity in the front of it, but they wanted to think beyond themselves, which is really quite incredible. And this has become what's called their business integration and environmental and social governance council. They built an internal staff of executives to handle those integrative functions. But we brought the CEO of a $40 billion investment house, Calvert, to it. We brought an executive vice president of Lockheed Martin to it. We brought two doctors that are doing incredible public good. One helped Kennedy write the American for Disabilities Act. So I nominated 40, Mia, and then the leadership at Merck chose seven. And every six months, they present to the top 40 at Merck. I spend the six months helping coach and develop their content. And I can tell you with result that Merck has now dedicated more than $15 billion across the next years to compete on answers for climate change before there even is a carbon tax. So that's what a science-based company can do, Mia. They could stay ahead of the law and so they're doing investments to change their future laboratories and facilities to use more cleaner energy than required and currently available in the marketplace. So that's the kind of work we get to do with these multi-year clients. While hearing Dr. Piasecki speak about his experience with sustainability efforts and what he has been working on more recently, it became clear to me just how much the environmental movement has changed since man-made climate change was first made known to the public several decades ago. As Piasecki mentioned, areas of environmental studies and environmental sciences were just beginning to be introduced as actual majors in colleges and universities in the 1970s and 1980s. The idea of a circular economy was starting to develop in certain intellectual and academic circles, but the specific terminology wasn't quite there yet and it would take a while for the idea to become more popular. The challenge that the world population will face in the coming years seems to be the unfortunate reality that every industry we have now produces unnecessary waste. Not to mention that any industry that relies on petroleum-based plastic for making their products inextricably relies on the oil industry. 
And as Piyosaki discusses in this interview, it's become more and more clear over the years that tackling climate change will involve efforts from all parties living on this planet, public and private sectors, individuals, and groups. So, what does that mean for our future? I'm a young person myself. I'm a college student. I don't think I can confidently make any assumptions about what the future will look like. Interesting to note that Piyosaki, a man of an older generation who has seen and experienced many of the shortcomings the environmental movement has endured, is more optimistic about the future than a lot of my own peers. Maybe that's why, actually. <laughs> Perhaps it's because he's had the chance to affect the world already to see the changes that people are trying to make that he has this optimism. There's a certain kind of powerlessness you feel when you learn about societal problems in school, knowing that something is going on out there in the world, but you don't yet have the tools to do anything about it. But Piyosaki has his own advice for fighting this climate despair. Having the initiative to think up solutions. Our future is not set in stone, which means there's always something that can be done to change it. Hopefully for the better. Now, back to the interview. So having had experience, uh, as you just discussed, working with companies that are focused on you know, sustainability, but you've also had experience working in the public sector with the EPA, I believe, um, and a special uh, advisory council in the White House. So I, I was wondering, what do you see as the role of governments in the climate crisis? Because it seems uh, you've written a lot about uh, the power that companies can have and how they can contribute to social issues like climate change. But how might that affect the role of governments? Excellent question, Larissa. And I think what's really beautiful about the new generation is that they understand that it's uh, answers to social problems like COVID or climate change have to come from three interacting circles of influence. There has to be the world of science and technology about to make something that can be engineered and scaled up. In the middle, in the big circle, is the marketplace. And then the other circle is government, right? And I was lucky that I got appointed by Al Gore's White House Council to be an early council member of, of several dozen people who were helping Clinton and Gore think about climate change. History shows that we failed because we were focusing mostly on the polar bear and on the impact to animals. Nowadays, I focus mostly on influencing doctors and influencing the military. Because if you can get the science-based practitioner like doctors and nurses, so we're, I'm on a board that in, is involved with 60,000 doctors to give you a sense of the scale. So the two main types of government work that I feel comfortable talking about is one was reinventing EPA. I was on EPA's Executive Advisory Council, and I was also on another multi-year council called NASET, which was about environmental technology. And the things I learned is that EPA at the time was like a boat of 17,000 people, but we tried to shape the boat so that it could create innovation, right, rather than just rules. In the end, most solutions, Larissa, that your generation is going to be involved with are aligning money, people, and rules. So what government can do is help regulate the marketplace. It can help regulate the corporate behavior. 
and it can indirectly influence the rate of consumption of the consumer. So I think the answer is, and I only learned this by working for governments for so long, right? It is true that most of the time in the last 20 years, I've been working for the large companies with the large problems, right? But, but if you think of it as um, three intersecting circles, there'll be tremendous debate at any given moment in history. Should the circle of the market be twice as big as the circle of government? Should the government be enlarged, like Build Back Better is a good example of? There'll be continual debate about the relative size of those two circles, but the insight is to see that they're intimately related and they intersect and osmotically influence each other like cells. But then, thank God, there's also the pure circle of science and technology, where if we can learn how to double the amount of money, my friend Bill Novelli is trying to double the amount of money to science and technology, agencies like NOAA, so that we don't have to spend all the money just on defense, like in this current Ukraine problem, right? If we could change the ratio of those three circles, we can create positive social change with great impact. In America, there's such a strong belief in markets and almost up until quite recently, we didn't limit ourselves. So this philosophy of frugality is really one that we're just coming to. And at some stage, we have to ask ourselves, is the market always right? Is capitalism always right? I wrote a book called World Inc. And in that book, I argue for a vision of capitalism, which is less destructive and less speculative. So I created a concept called social response capitalism. And it's broader than corporate responsibility, because if you can make companies tick on social response, they will change faster and advance the rules faster for social good. So I define old school capitalism of the last 50 years, the kind of that Friedman defined as speculative capitalism. It takes human talent, technology, distribution rules, channels of influence, and tries to make more money than a competitor faster. That's speculative capitalism. I believe in a world of 7 billion people, as we evolve towards 9 billion people in a time of climate change, we have to morph more like a Unilever or more like a Toyota or Merck. These are companies that now compete on social needs. They not only, they try and get the best human talent, they try and invest in the best technology, they try and understand how to influence distribution and supply chain channels, right? But in addition, they're asking fundamental questions like where is cancer going in the Merck case? Or in Toyota, when they invented the hybrid powertrain, which we worked on, a more efficient car, even when the price of gasoline is not $3, they were able to change the nature of the car. Now, unfortunately, only 8 million people in the world have bought the Prius, right? But eventually you can make change in the marketplace through changing the way companies tick. So I call it social response capitalism. And I think it's much broader than educating uh, just for um, corporate social responsibility because corporate social responsibility Mia, can easily degrade into public relations and greenwashing, right? But if you actually change the way the CFO and the general counsel 
and the top leaders think about social needs, right? So I would want to just recite a couple of numbers so Larissa and her generation can think about this. Of the 100 largest economies in the world, the majority of them are now corporations, not nations. So that can be viewed as both a disturbing fact or a liberating fact, because I, I'm arguing to your listeners that there's a nobility in learning how to change companies, learning how to work within companies to change them for social good. Now, these massive mansions are entities with great political leverage, um, and they're what's called MNCs, or multinational corporations. And they already control more than 22% of all global foreign assets. The, the 300 largest multinationals account for more than a quarter of all world's assets. And so I come from a tradition, Larissa and Mia and others, that wants to both change the nature of the rulemaking government so that it fosters innovation, but also force the corporations as much as possible to become less speculative and more social, right? So it's ironic to me, Mia, that most of those translations occurred in cultures that don't have the typical American distrust of the word, word social. In America, you are perceived as a socialist if you use the word social. Yet, if you look at these great global companies like Unilever, which works in 190 nations on 300 different brands, they're ahead of government in causing sustainability solutions. Companies, large corporations could definitely accelerate that change. It's a huge responsibility to put on them, but uh, we can all be part of that change uh, and then spur government to change. I would like to tell you about a recent board level uh, solution that we came across at COP26. So about four years ago, I accepted a board of directors offer from George Mason University's uh, Medical Consortium on Climate and Public Health. And I had told you earlier that during the Gore years, I had failed, like many did, in regulating climate change. So I, I, I really wanted to get my fingers dirty and every six weeks we work as a board on issues of climate change before Congress and public change across the world. So for COP26, we had worked with United Kingdom's Ministry of Health and produced through our staff a 400 plus page document on how hospitals also have to change in order to deal with climate change. So we all know that about 22% of the problem is oil and gas and about some more than 15% of it is the nature of transportation and cars. But I was stunned to find out that eight to 12% of the world problem is that if you think about it, the thing that extends our lives, hospital care, right? Nurses and doctors also is on the petrochemical treadmill, right? All of the intravenous plastic tubing, you know, all of the drugs, they're often derived from petrochemicals. So the good news is that the George Mason researcher, his name is Edward Maybach. He was listed by Reuters as one of the top seven climate scientists in the world. He's on our staff and he, his team put together this thing with the UK so that by the time America and the UK came to COP26, they had 42 other nations 
agreeing on this hospitalization reduction plan. So you're right, Mia, it takes years. We were working on it for three years, but our goal for COP27 is to double the number of nations that sign up like that happened in methane this year or coal reduction in the last two years. So that I, th I think that if you're motivated and you have social good in mind and you understand the levers and the skills required and the knowledge, you can actually overcome apathy and frustration and anxiety. One of my greatest concerns about Larissa's generation is we just gave, my foundation just gave $5,000 to a young writer called um, Daniel Sherrill, who wrote a book called Warmth, which is about climate anxiety. And I am deeply concerned about the fact that one of the times my daughter came home from undergraduate school and she looked me in the eye and said, Dad, what are you doing to help climate change, right? Because I hadn't obviously spent enough time telling her that I had spent a huge amount of my career not succeeding on climate change, right? So I think there is, Larissa, a new kind of worry in the new generation, which we can only call climate anxiety. And what I wanna do is in my books, like this new book in particular, A New Way to Wealth, is designed to help erase the frustration and fear of that generation so that they can take actions that are fulfilling Right? The only way to beat back fear and anxiety is to take action. And the good news about you know, Gen X and the millenniums is that they seem to be shaping a momentum towards responding to the great social needs faster than some of the prior generations. I can attest that climate anxiety is pretty prevalent among my peers. I was wondering, I think there are certain companies in certain industries that rely on making an excess of product for cheap, which of course means producing a lot of waste, right? Something like the fast fashion industry. Um, and so how do you go about convincing these types of companies, these industries, to change a fundamental part of their business model for the sake of climate change? Well said, Larissa. You know, what you do is you take in a, a deep breath and you admit that you have to pick the fights that you feel you can win and influence. So I wrote a book on fashion called The Quiet Genius of Eileen Fisher, because I wanted to establish a benchmark that there are more sustainable designers like Eileen Fisher, who wins awards in the fashion world and is a one really peculiar CEO. She, uh, when her design team is going in a direction she doesn't like Larissa, she just rings a bell. And that means reboot your computers, everybody. <laughs> Time to change. So I wrote a little biography about her called The Quiet Genius of Eileen Fisher because her voice is not necessarily being heard by those incredibly fast fashion people. It is a really important vulnerable spot in the system to attack. Uh, I didn't have the leverage into the fashion as much as my team of lawyers and executives do into big oil. You know, I've worked for five different big oil polluters now over the last 30 years because I see that I have leverage in that space. We've also worked in automaking, which is a big part of the problem. And like I just told you, hospitals now in the medical space. But I think you're right. Fashion is um, a complicated subject that needs to be tackled. But we've talked a lot about the past. But what I'd like to do is give 
your listeners some concepts of what is the present. And I'd like to say that the way I look at the present is that it's always full of constraints and obstacles, just like my early life was, just like my initial family and setting was, right? But if you think of the present as a set of predicaments, then you can empower yourself to select the predicaments that you think you can add value to, that you can calculate your time and resources and teams. And it's only then that you can make a creative difference in the present. Because if, if, if you just focus on the predicaments, you'll see 25 of them every day when you read the paper. But if you go through that process that I just outlined, you can discover creativity again. You can discover the things that you can work on, then you can build the teams to work on them. And eventually, the hope is you'll find satisfaction and fulfillment, wealth is the discovery of what is enough, right? That, that wealth is the discovery that you have something to add to society as opposed to being defeated by apathy or frustration or anxiety. Yes, that's a very um, important thing to distinguish what one can make the most difference at. And I love that question as well. What is enough? You were talking about fashion, and I believe something like 21 billion tons annually are, of you know, textiles are put into landfills every year. And it's so disheartening when we could we can just limit ourselves and we think about quality or making things to last. It takes a little bit of a readjustment because capitalism or our current model of capitalism doesn't always encourage that. I wonder what your reflections are on education, climate education slowly becoming more adopted at a younger uh, level in schools, but it's still not there. But we have to really integrate it at a, an early age, whereas some of us are just coming to it like we had to educate ourselves about it. I, I think what you said is profoundly true, Mia, and, and that education and environmental education have become more significant in my life than ever imagined 40 years ago. So when I started studying in this field, it was called natural resource management. And it was mostly about fish and wildlife management. It wasn't really about the issues as big as climate change. There are three kinds of competencies it's worth investing in yourself to develop, right? The, 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 the first, is that as you're young and your mind is plastic and your ambition is rich, it pays to deal with some technical complexity to earn respect in society. That technical competence could be engineering, science. It could be a complex artistic function. It could, you know, where you're dealing with complex materials in your art. And it could also be accounting, there, there is an importance, I believe, in becoming comfortable in a, in a way that proves you can deal with complexity. And normally in modern society, that starts with some technical issue. O over time, the second competency that you want to develop, I consider management savvy. So that supposing you're going to do a beautiful mural or you're going to write a book, or you're going to do something creative. You still have to have enough business savvy to know what materials you can purchase, how you manage those materials, 
And then most importantly, how the world acknowledges your product because it is in fact a product. So I think environmental education is a good way to deal with technical complexity, management savvy, but the last and third competence is social awareness. If you don't have social awareness, you could become quite greedy and you put everything in your own pocket, right? So I would suggest for those undergrads or graduate students or postdocs that are trying to think of, try and find a, a blend of those different types of challenges. You don't have to become the master of all three. You can always hire accountants. You can always hire engineers. You could always hire materials experts. But the whole idea is if you have a motivated psyche, try and understand that you can excel through these multiple competencies. You don't need them all, but you need to be that you can't solve climate change without some awareness of all three of those. You know, really, as you reflect on education and the challenges we face, the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, you touched on some of it there, but, you know, what were some teachers or life lessons that were most important to you? Um, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think waking up in the morning with openness instead of regret or the, the uh, what openness is, is the ability to look out of the windows of the self and learn from somebody else and, and grow, right? So, you know, clearly all of the competitive things of consistency and fortitude and persistence are necessary to help get ahead. But you can't even get there unless you have openness. And the thing that I often worry about is the people who are not pursuing creative things out of fear, right? Their neurological system is designed to stay in the initial box as opposed to try and push out and push up. The first thing to realize as anybody who's open, you realize that the future is near, that the future is not some abstract thing that you can defer and wait for, that people who care about the future may understand that humans are hardwired to care about the future. The trick is to help you align your money and your people and your rules around competitive frugality, because that is the more certain path to success in a world filled with brutality and violence and prejudice, right? I spoke in the beginning of this interview about the prejudice I felt against my Puerto Rican brothers and my Chinese sisters. And uh, I think that I was able to fight into a future because I didn't become hardened by that brutality or prejudice. I think the second thing you learn is that fate is actually a personal construct, that there are many things that happen in your life outside of your control. You know, your mother may die, your brother may be put in prison, but the fact remains that with the mantra doing more with less is success, each day you wake up and can make fateful decisions that shape your own ascent, your own position, your own creativity. So I like to think of it as fate is a personal construct because when I was finishing my PhD at Cornell, 
they had me teach an Emerson essay called Freedom and Faith, where in the beginning of the essay, I was very disturbed by the fact that the great writer Emerson said that fate is so overwhelming in some traditions that it's as if we were each involved in a shipwreck and we were thrown off the ship into a turbulent ocean. And all we had was the chance to look at each other. What, what I've come to believe is that not only is the future near, but you can be fateful of your own person. You can design, that's the way to say it. You can design your own life. You don't have to assume that the life has been designed for you. Because what is creativity after all, me, right? But designing your own life, right? You're designing it. And then the last thing that I really think is even more fundamental than all the personal things I've said so far is that in the end, all wealth is social wealth. I learned that from Ben Franklin. He demonstrated it to me again and again, that in the act of being civil, in the act of being generous, in the act of being involved in a daily or weekly exchange with a range of people, you are creating social wealth, not just money in the bank. And I think, Mia, that's what a creative life is about. Yeah, that's so important. We can create our own future. It's it's all within our grasp. We just have to creatively visualize it, choose our mentors, you know, choose who we want to learn from and keep that open mind, which can be hard sometimes, but just I we we know it from your example that you're endlessly curious about a variety of subjects. So thank you, Bruce Piasecki, for passing on what you know and sharing your personal journey and insights into business strategy, corporate change, and sustainability in this decade of transformative change. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and one planet podcast. And Mia, keep up the good work with all those students and with the exhibition on the road. I wish you the best. Thank you for your time. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Larissa Bushkin. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Yeah.